This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is H.P. Alberelli the CIA's secret Cold War experiments, and the murder of Dr. Frank Olson. This is one of those shows that will open your eyes even more as to who really is in charge. H.P. Alberelli will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows. That's 89 episodes to date a few bonus interviews, the Veritas private chat room, and the Manticore forum. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. And let me remind you that the 8GB brushed metal-cased USB drive containing all of Season 1 and a lot of bonus material is now in stock. To find out what else is included, just visit our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the Veritas store where you can order. You may remember vague details of a person who was high on LSD and jumped out a window in New York back in the 60s. You might also recall that it had something to do with the CIA. It certainly did. It was murder. So get ready to discuss details once highly classified accounts of the CIA's experiments with LSD and other drugs in a series of biochemical experiments. These covert actions on unsuspecting individuals resulted in at least five deaths and 300 people seeking medical care. For decades, the seemingly unrelated mysteries of Dr. Frank Olson's strange suicide in 1953 and the bizarre hallucinogenic breakout in the French village of Pont-Saint-Esprit in August 1951 
have independently perplexed serious investigators. The subjects have been rehashed in countless accounts on the internet and in many television news, features, and documentaries over the years. However, using secret and never-before-revealed CIA reports obtained through the Freedom of Information Act, H.P. Alberelli has tied together these two events, along with many others. His startling conclusion is that the CIA has high hopes of using LSD to develop a truth serum and perhaps even create a person who would unwittingly murder on command. The drug had to be administered surreptitiously, and that was the reason behind the dosing of entire French villages and hundreds of unknowing civilians, hospital patients, prisoners, and military personnel. H.P. Alberelli is coming up next to discuss the reasons behind Dr. Olson's murder and also reveal the identities of the man responsible for the crime, their ties to Lee Harvey Oswald, the murder of JFK, and the role in the infamous French Connection heroin case, CIA-sponsored mind control and assassination programs. If you want to believe, stop this audio now. If you want to know the truth, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. author of The Franklin Scandal, and you're listening to Veritas. H.P. Alberelli Jr., is an investigative reporter and writer who lives in the Tampa Bay region of Florida. He has written articles about Frank Olson's death, as well as about the post-9-11 anthrax investigation, biological warfare, Cuba, and other subjects, which have appeared on the WorldNet Daily website. Other writings by Alberelli may be found in Witness, a literary journal on Tampa's alternative newspaper, The Weekly Planet. A graduate of Antioch Law School, Alberelli has worked as a researcher, scriptwriter, and technical consultant on several television documentaries, including A&E's recent investigative report on Frank Olson, produced by London's Principal Films. From 1977 to 1980, Alberelli worked in the White House under the Carter administration, and then later served on the senior policy staff for the Service Employees International Union, AFL-CIO in Washington, D.C. Alberelli is a former board member of the London-based Transnational Information Center and has traveled extensively throughout Europe, Asia, and Africa. He is the author of A Terrible Mistake, The Murder of Frank Olson, and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments. In 1953, U.S. Army biochemist Dr. Frank Olson died suddenly in New York City, military, and federal officials said his death was a suicide. But more than a half a century later, this new book argues that his death came at the hand of the Central Intelligence Agency. And to discuss this very important case, directly from Tampa Bay, Florida, for the first time on Veritas, I would like to introduce H.P. Alberelli. Hello, Mr. Alberelli, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be with you. It's my pleasure. May I call you Hank? Sure, absolutely. Thank you. And I just want to begin by asking how you first became involved and why you decided to explore and investigate the death, or as you call it, the murder of Dr. Frank Olson. Sure, it's uh, it's a long story, and I'll I'll try to make it short. But uh, back in the mid 
1990s or probably the early 1990s. Uh, it's a little blurry right now, year-wise. Uh, I had moved from Washington, D.C. Uh, with my wife and daughter to relocate uh, in a small town on the southern side of uh, Maryland, uh, Baltimore, Maryland, called Catonsville, Maryland. Uh, and the first couple weeks uh, I, had, I had lived in that town, uh, I became aware of the fact that a number of uh, experiments had been conducted at a facility uh, not too far away from my house, about two or three miles from the house, at a facility called the Spring Grove uh, hospital. Uh, that's how it was referred to by local residents. Uh, formerly, it was called the Maryland Psychiatric Institute. But it was an aged uh, facility, had been actually been there uh, since the late uh, 1700s, uh, first uh, initiated as one of the, uh, as an asylum uh, for women, uh, for only women. So it was one of the oldest. Uh, one of the oldest mental institutions in the United States, but in the early, in the very early 1950s, actually in 1950 and 1951, uh, I learned after moving to Catonsville, uh, there were there were a number, of, probably the first in the United States, a number of experiments conducted with LSD uh, at the Spring Grove facility. Uh, and that just piqued my interest because uh, I had read a lot about the subject prior to moving to Catonsville, but I hadn't realized that uh, research had been conducted as early as 1950. I, I was under the impression that it started a little bit later, uh, perhaps after 1953 or, or 1954. Uh, at that point in time, I wasn't real familiar with the Frank Olson story. I wasn't really familiar with it uh, beyond the newspapers. So I started digging into... Uh, the activities at Spring Grove, thinking that I would probably write uh, a short, maybe 2,000, 2,500-word article uh, just on early experimentation with LSD in Maryland. Uh, and in the process of, of conducting uh, my research for that planned article, uh, I happened to visit Spring Grove because a friend of mine was using uh, the campus uh, as a setting for a film that had nothing to do with, with the, the asylum, the institute, or, or the Frank Olson or LSD uh, subjects at all. But uh, Spring Grove is located in a very pastoral, rural, semi-rural setting, and it's really quite beautiful, and there's ponds and, and, and small rivers running through the property and rolling hills, and the buildings... Uh, again, are quite uh, old, having some of them having been built in the uh, the late 1700s, and and uh, even more uh, around the mid 1800s. So it's a beautiful campus, and she was filming. She was using the property as a as a location for a film, and I took that as an opportunity to visit and went through a couple of the empty buildings, some of the older buildings on that campus uh, at that point in time uh, had been vacated uh, because uh, they just weren't up to code. I don't know if they were planned uh, for rehabilitation, but at any rate, at that point in time, they were vacant. And I walked through a couple. They, they weren't barricaded or boarded up or anything. And in in one of the basements in one of the older buildings, I found uh, a, a few old, old boxes, uh, carton boxes filled with uh, documents, uh, actually patient files in, in some of the boxes, which I did not go through. But on top of one of the boxes, there were maybe 14 or 15 boxes in all, there were log books, uh, sign-in books that had uh, formerly been used uh, by the facility in the early 50s. Uh, and so I went through, I actually sat down and went through a few of the sign-in books to try to see if there were any names that, that struck me as, as being familiar. Uh, and there weren't, there, there were a few, there were names of doctors that 
that I was familiar with, and a few I wrote down. And one of the ones that I wrote down was Harold Abramson, and another one was Vincent Rouet. And then, along with Abramson and Rouet's name, uh, uh, was Frank Olson's name. I think it was signed Frank R. Olson. Uh, Olson was a Ph.D., not a doctor. and so that, I, Olson's name, of course, rang a bell, but again, I wasn't that familiar with his case. I knew, I knew of, I, I knew of Frank Olson from the Rockefeller Commission revelations that had been, that had been all across the newspapers in 1975, but that wasn't that fresh in my mind uh, at that point in time in the early 1900s. So I wrote that down, and I was going to continue my research into the article, but got distracted for a couple weeks. And then one morning, uh, got up and picked up a copy of the Washington Post. And on the front page of the Metro section of the Washington Post, there was an article uh, concerning Frank Olson's body being exhumed uh, from its, its grave uh, in Frederick, Maryland, in a cemetery in Frederick, Maryland, uh, and the article stated that uh, the Olson survivors, primarily uh, Eric and Nils Olson, uh, the surviving sons of Frank Olson, uh, were planning on reburying uh, their father, Frank Olson, in a new grave in Frederick uh, at a cemetery where his his wife, their mother, uh, was buried. Uh, but before he was to be reburied, uh, they had plans for a forensic investigation to be conducted into his death because they had long suspected since about 1976 forward that, um, that his death had been foul play. Uh, and that was approximately two or three weeks after I had visited Spring Grove and found the sign-in books, uh, with Olson's name, uh, in them, along with what I learned uh, soon thereafter, was uh, his superior's name uh, at Fort Dietrich, or it was called Camp Dietrich then, Vincent Rouet. Uh, and even at that point, uh, I still planned on writing an article. I had planned on writing an article initially, as stated, uh, just on the subject of early research into LSD, but that sort of morphed right away into an article involving Frank Olson because I knew of, I knew right away of the importance of uh, of Olson's having been at, at Spring Grove that early. Uh, so I started my research. The way I started my research uh, into the Olson case uh, was was basically to look at to look for anything and everything that had been bu- published on the case. And of course, I knew there were a lot of uh, a lot of newspaper art- articles stemming from uh, the mid 1970s. Again, when the Rockefeller Commission did all its work, and the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, tracked that work pretty closely for about three or four months. Uh, but I also had recalled that there was a chapter in uh, John Marx's book. Uh, it's a well-known book called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate uh, that was devoted uh, entirely to to the Frank Olson case and, and to his death and alleged suicide in November 28, 1953 in New York City. So I picked up a, a copy of that book, um, read, that, read that chapter uh, through two or three times and then started marking it up and by about the fourth time I had read it, uh, I literally had, uh, it was just filled with question marks and, and, and questions and issues that I had. And it was more than obvious to me that there was a lot more to, uh, to Frank Olson's death uh, than met the eye. Uh, and again, I was still thinking about... Uh, writing an article uh, at that point in time. I knew it was going to be much longer than 2,500 words, but within about three or four months uh, after having discovered that much of the material uh, in the Marx book uh, was very, very questionable and and at issue uh, 
uh, I began to realize that that you know it, it had to be more than an article and that that it was a book. But at that point in time, I didn't realize it was going to be quite as large a book as it turned out to be. And I believe there's a, a uh, an important story. I think it's you, you and your daughter went to a small restaurant in the area, and your daughter told you, Dad, I think uh, we're the only normal ones here. Can you explain what happened there? Sure. That That is exactly how I... Uh, that story relates to exactly how I came on to the whole issue of the experiments at Spring Grove. We had just mm -hmm. moved there uh, to Catons, Catonsville, Maryland. My daughter was in third grade third or fourth grade, and, and I picked her up after school and took her to a, a local fast food restaurant in Catonsville for, for a snack after school. And it was about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and there weren't too many people when we when we went into the facility. But uh, my daughter was a, a little more observant than I was, and, and After being there for a few minutes, she leaned across the table and she said, Dad, don't look, but we're the only normal people in here. And and I looked nonetheless and, and saw that she was right, uh, that there were a lot of, not a lot, maybe six or seven tables occupied by by adults, older adults, who who were acting rather peculiar, uh, in peculiar sorts of ways, talking to themselves. Mental patients? They, uh, as it turned out, they were all mental patients. And mm -hmm. I didn't know it at the time. And, and I talked to a neighbor about two or three days later and, and mentioned the incident to him and said, you know, how, how odd it was. And, and it was at that point in time I learned about the LSD experiments because uh, he laughed and said, "Oh, those are those people are harmless. Those are the old uh, the uh, uh, people who have sort of hung on from the LSD experiments in the 1950s." And I said, "Really?" I uh, told him I didn't realize that there were experiments conducted uh, that early in time, and and that led to my eventual visit within within a few weeks to the facility uh, while my friend was using the campus as a, a film location. Why was Olson so important? And was he a microbiologist? And you know how many microbiologists mysteriously die all the time, even to this day? Well, they, in the last yeah, 10, 15 years, there, there have been... Uh, an uncanny number of deaths by microbiologists. But Olson, of course, died in, in November of 1953. And, and at that point in time, during those years, uh, uh, there, there weren't really, besides his, there were none, no mysterious deaths of, of microbiologists that, that I was aware of besides his. Uh, But also, to, to answer your question as to what he was, he, w he was a microbiologist. Uh, he had gone to college in Wisconsin, uh, had gotten a Ph.D. in microbiology from, from the universe, University of Wisconsin. And uh, while at the University of Con Wisconsin, his thesis, uh, the, the professor, college professor that over, oversaw his, the The writing of his thesis, of Frank's thesis, was a guy called uh, Dr. Ira Baldwin, uh, who was also a microbiologist and and pretty well respected uh, at the time. And not long, uh, very shortly after Olson graduated from graduate school, I think within seven or eight months, Baldwin was actually uh, uh, tapped by the by the U.S. Army uh, and people. Uh, in Washington uh, to go to Frederick, Maryland and to become the first research director uh, at Camp Dietrich, uh, which today is is called Fort Dietrich, is the chemical and, right. and biological center for, for the uh, United States in terms of research. At that point in time, when When Baldwin was was tapped to to be director, the the facility Camp Dietrich hadn't even been constructed. Uh, they were still looking for for acreage in Frederick Frederick Maryland. And by the time Baldwin got there, land had been selected, but uh, he temporarily set up shop at Edgewood Arsenal, uh, which is also in Maryland, not too far away from from Fort Dietrich. Uh, and one of the very first people, as research director, he was also in charge of, of hiring uh, all, all other 
microbiologists who were going to work at the facility. And it was quite a substantial number at that point in time. It was maybe 50 or 60 uh, microbiologists that he was charged with with hiring. And about the, I think it was the fifth or sixth person that he reached out for uh, was Frank Olson because he had been impressed with Olson's work ethic uh, at the University of Wisconsin. And at the time that Baldwin contacted uh, Olson to, to invite him to, to come to Maryland to, to eventually work at Fort Detrick, Camp Detrick. Olson uh, was actually in the U.S. Army, was, a, I think, a second lieutenant at, at Fort Hood in Texas, because while, while attending the University of Wisconsin, uh, Olson had also participated in reserved off- officers' training there. So when after he graduated, he had a, a commitment to fulfill, and, and of course, uh, coinciding, literally coinciding with that, was the Second World War. So Olson was in basic training, basically, uh, at, at Fort Hood in Texas, and ex- fully expecting to go overseas uh, as a second lieutenant. And and uh, actually, it was pretty fortunate for him that Baldwin contacted him, because as it turned out, Olson, uh, during the entire length of the Second World War, never less, left the country at all, uh, stayed uh, exclusively at Edgewood and in Camp Dietrich. Did you think that Frank Olson was murdered right from the start? Well, I knew I knew from reading uh, I knew from I had a lot of issues uh, with reading the the Marx chapter. I didn't no I didn't know he was murdered, but I, I certainly suspected foul play. Within after reading the 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 Marx chapter and then going to the Library of Congress and and going through all the newspaper articles that had been published in 75 through through about 79, uh, again, as a result of the uh, Rockefeller Commission's findings. Uh, I, I really suspected foul play at that point in time, but by by who or or why uh, why he you know possibly uh, was murdered, I had no idea. Uh, but I knew I knew there was far more to the story uh, than than had been reported, and and one of the first things in in 1975 that had been reported uh, when when let me back up a little bit when Olson and when Olson first when Olson died on November 28, 1953, what was reported was that he had traveled from. Camp Dietrich to New York City in the company of two people he worked with uh, at at Camp Dietrich, uh, primarily because uh, he was depressed. There was no reason given for his depression other than of the three articles that were published, one stated that he had uh, stomach ulcers and, and for some reason was depressed because of those. But he had traveled to New York City uh, to see a psychiatrist, who and that person's name was Dr. Harold Abramson, and that was one of the names in the logbook uh, that I saw at Spring Grove. And and while in New York City, uh, in, uh, implicitly because he was depressed, he got up in the middle of the night, uh, at 2:30 in the morning on the on the uh, early morning of November 28th, and jumped out. Uh, the tenth floor window of of a hotel, the Hotel Statler uh, in New York City. But what what was interesting uh, was in all those reports from '53 until 1975, most people assumed that Olson, uh, you know, like most people, had opened the window uh, before he jumped out. But what I fairly quickly found out and in my research was that Olson actually jumped through a closed window. Uh, and not only was the window closed, but there was a canvas shade drawn uh, in front of the window and, and cloth curtains uh, closed, uh, drawn shut over the canvas shade. And, and the, the person that was sharing the room with him uh, alleged that 
the room was dark when when he killed himself. That person who was in the room turned out to be uh, a CIA official, but that wasn't uh. reported. That wasn't reported in 1953. That was finally revealed in uh, in 1975. The other important thing that wasn't revealed. Uh, in 1953 until 1975, and I guess in a lot of ways this is understandable, but was that uh, Olson had been dosed with LSD uh, by the CIA nine days before his alleged suicide. Uh, and of course, in, in 1953, uh, the, the, the letters LSD wouldn't have made much sense to anyone in the of United course. States or anywhere anyway. Uh, very, very few people knew what what LSD was at that point in time. But, of course, that wasn't reported in 1953. The reason, in 1975, when his death was reported, uh, again, as a result of the Rockefeller Commission findings, uh, that, was a, that was a substantial part of, of, of the newspaper coverage of Olson's death and and in a lot of ways, it's interesting. It worked. Uh, it worked to the effect of actually keeping uh, the media from asking uh, in-depth questions about Olson's death. There was almost an assumption right away. People found it so shocking that that both the army and the CIA would would dose one of its own scientists with LSD uh, uh, that they really didn't think much beyond that and and the assumption was made almost immediately well yeah of course they you know they dosed this 43 year old man with LSD and he you know he knew nothing about drugs or the reaction to drugs and and he killed himself uh and that had, in 1975 uh, prior to 1975 that had happened a few times in the United States so suicide in LSD was still uh as it is today fairly rare uh there's a lot of myths about suicide about lsd provoking suicides but but generally speaking that's not true uh there are people that have what what are called bad trips but to actually kill yourself under the influence of lsd is is pretty rare and of course olson uh had been dosed with lsd nine days before his death uh, so to to kill yourself due to depression uh, related to LSD nine days later is is even more rare. Uh, and if you believe the newspapers from from 1975, I think it it was stated that Olson was given I think 65 or 70 uh, uh, mics of of LSD, and that's that's a fairly small amount uh and by all if you review all the medical literature uh that's really not enough to to trigger what's considered a a, a normal LSD experiment it usually takes around 100 150 uh, a larger person maybe maybe you know 175 or 200 or more uh and and actually even during the 50s, when the CIA was experimenting widely with the drug, uh, and there were some tests involving children, and even the children were given more than than 60 or 70 mics. And not to take a quick detour, but as I was saying in the prior question, mm-hmm. a lot of microbiologists die all the time. You see mm-hmm. the lists on the internet all the time. Mm-hmm. What is it that triggers their death. I mean, they say that uh, they commit suicide, but I beg to differ, and I guess you beg to differ as well. Well, you know, there's a, for, for me, there's a world of difference between some of the, some of the recent cases, and uh, it may not be a world of difference, but uh, different reasons uh, for, for some of the cases that are, that are fresh in my memory. I, the fella in in England, David Kelly, I think was his name, that was related to uh, the search for, you know, uh, chemical and biological weapons of mass destruction in, in, in Iraq, Iraq and, yes. and the politics between Britain and the United States. And and so in that sense, a lot of these deaths probably, since since none of them, none of the recent deaths over the last 20 years have been uh, adequately, they haven't been thoroughly investigated. They haven't even been adequately investigated. Uh, 
they relate to the Olson death in the sense that uh, almost all these men had worked for government, had worked for right. various government agencies, including intelligence services. And, and so maybe like Olson, uh, uh, they knew, you know, they knew too much or they were threatening to uh, to expose something. I, I really don't know. Again, I haven't, I've read a fair amount on the Kelly death and, and I've yet to see a really, uh, good motive for his murder. But at the same time, if you look at the facts surrounding his death, it certainly, it certainly appears as if foul play, uh, may have been involved. And then in the case of some of these other microbiologists, they, they actually flat out were murdered, uh, yet, yet nobody can come up with a reason as to why, and no, no killer has ever, ever been apprehended. I think there was one fellow who was uh, attacked with a machete in a parking lot in, in southern Florida somewhere, uh, maybe around Miami, and and nobody has ever been arrested uh, for for that murder, and and nobody's ever really dug into that. So. So there's a lot of work out there for for journalists to do. In the Olson case, uh, uh, we you know we know uh, quite specifically why he was murdered. He he wanted to leave his employment uh, with with the army. He at the time that he died, he was a civilian employee for the army. When when he had started out, he was uh, or when he finished up in the service, he was actually a captain. Uh, an army captain who was working as a microbiologist at at uh, Camp Dietrich uh, prior to his death, but Olson uh, didn't enjoy uh, being in the military at all. It was very contrary to to his personality and psychological makeup, and and uh, from what all all that I could see, he just flat out hated uh, being. He didn't in the army. like the discipline. No, he didn't like the discipline or, or the authority at all. Olson, sort of in, in a nutshell, Olson, Olson wasn't, from from what I found out, I, I went into my research knowing absolutely nothing about Olson other than the fact that he he was married, seemed to be a good husband, and, and was doing a, you know, he and his wife were doing a good job raising three children. Uh, but... Over a period of about six or seven years, and it was like pulling teeth, I was able to eventually find out uh, that he wasn't, a lot of people didn't like him at all, uh, primarily because of his personality. He was fairly, fairly arrogant, fairly outspoken, uh, had some bias, strong biases about uh, minorities and Jewish people, and, and, and didn't hold back uh, at all, uh, when when he had the opportunity opportunity to express those biases, and and in some of the settings, in terms of interacting with the CIA, uh, that had to be pretty uncomfortable for 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 people he was encountering because he did encounter uh, actually a hell of a lot of people who were Jewish. Uh, who worked for for the CIA either directly or or under contract? The the alleged psych the the person he was taken to that that supposedly was a psychiatrist the week of his death, uh, Harold Abramson actually was Jewish. Sure. Uh, it was a Norwegian Jew, uh, and had worked uh, prior. Unbeknownst to anybody, uh, even in 1975, had worked with Olson going back to I think 1942, and so he knew Olson pretty well. Uh, and I had a hard time reckoning with the fact. Well, you know, these guys worked off and on for 10 years, and and I'm not quite sure, you know, what the real true nature of that relationship was because. Uh, uh, a, n- a number of members of Olson's family told me uh, when I was trying to learn more about his character that that they just couldn't envision him having any kind of uh, cordial relationship with anybody that was Jewish. Uh, his brother-in-law told me that any time he was around Frank, when Jewish people would would enter the picture, he would literally get up and leave. Uh, the room or or whatever the setting was because he knew there were sure to be fireworks that Frank would go out of his way to say something 
insulting or, or you know, at least very indiscreet. So, so uh, do you know, do you know if you work with any of the scientists that came here after from Germany via Project Paperclip after World War II? Well, it certainly appears uh, there. There's nothing. There. There are no documents, uh, and I went through thousands and thousands of documents. There are no documents that specifically link him with any of the paperclip Nazis who, who came uh, actually starting right after the Second World War. But right. But there's. But uh, it, there seems to be little doubt that that he did. He. I mean, he had to have because a number. Because he, he, for about three years before his death, he headed up uh, a division at Camp Dietrich called the Special Operations Division, which people commonly refer to as SO. But uh, Olson was the chief of that division. He was relieved of that responsibility about a year before he died. But uh, while he was chief of that division, there were a number of, of Nazi scientists, uh, former Nazi scientists, who were assigned to work there. So there's no doubt uh, that he came into contact uh, 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 with these with these Germans and and was well aware of the work that we're doing. And there were besides those that were assigned to SO, there was. Oh God! A, a large number of other former Nazis who were sent to Edgewood Arsenal and other sections of Fort Detrick, uh, and he had to have known uh, about those people. And there's even unconfirmed reports that some of the uh, was it Unit the uh, 491 or the Japanese uh, unit that did the horrific experiments oh, yes. in China that that one or two of those people. Uh, popped up at Fort Detrick for a year or so to do uh, some covert teaching. Uh, and a, a lot of former people that work there have, have made that claim, but nobody's ever been able to 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 evidence it in, in terms of documentation or anything. But uh, given the people that have spoken about it, it seems pretty real to me. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that Olson worked with some of the former Nazis. There, there's that, and that's interesting, too, because there's a number of, of reports, uh, personnel reports, uh, personnel performance reports that were, were written uh, about Olson in the late 1940s. It would have been, I think, 1940. They're cited in the book, 1948, 49, maybe... I don't think 1950. I don't think there were any reports beyond then in terms of his performance. But a number, a number of his supervisors before he was promoted to head up SO were concerned about the fact that uh, Olson seemed to be fairly sympathetic uh, uh, towards the towards the, the Nazi cause. Yeah, right. yeah, and and they never that was never fleshed out in any of the reports. And everybody that made that claim went out of their way to say that. Uh, they were not questioning his patriotism, but just that uh, they had some issues, I, I guess, around th certain things that he said. His probably what should be pointed out in fairness to him was that his his parents uh, uh, were from Europe uh, and, and not from Germany, but from. Uh, for, I think is Finland or Sweden. Uh, I should know right off the top of my head, but my memory's failing me right now. But maybe that had something to do with his his affinity for for Germany. I don't know. That's kind of stretching it. But but uh, I'm just trying to be be fair to him and his family. Yeah. Sure. And how long did you investigate this story? Oh. Uh, I, th I thought it was going to be seven or eight months. It actually turned out to be a little over about 11 years. Huh. Uh, and then, and then uh, some of that time during those 11 years, uh, I did some writing, actually sit, sat down and wrote some portions of the book, but uh, that those were pretty scant. And, and then I finally sat down around 2000, uh, 2005 or six, and and and, uh, and and wrote the book, and put a you know put all my files in order, and actually started pounding the book out, and 
and and was still writing and <laughs> rewriting right up until uh, literally right up until it went to press uh, about a year ago. And a lot of times, and just a quick plug to your publisher, Trine Day, because mm-hmm. a lot of times people like you who write a very controversial book like this, they never see the light of day. They never see their books being published or sold because it's almost a radioactive topic that publishers don't even want to touch. Yeah, I had initially, initially I was going to do this book with another writer because uh, only because of the the research. When when I realized it was going to be a book, I reached out to a friend who was also a writer, and we were going to do the book together. But and and one of the first things we did was contact a, a well known agent, a book agent, and agents primarily. Their their task is to sell books to publishers, and of course, and once it's sold, then you get an advance, usually a small advance, and you, it gives you enough time to part-time to write the book and 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 we approached a fairly good agent uh uh right off the bat and she was very very excited about the book and thought she could sell it you know within a month or two had no no qualms whatsoever and that's always a pretty positive thing when an agent you know gets excited about a a proposal and, and takes you on right away but she immediately ran into problems and within about four months dropped this rather abruptly uh, and, and really didn't even want to talk about it. And then that experience repeated itself again with uh, an agent who had, who had actually been the publisher of a big uh, mainstream New York publishing house for, for about almost 20 years. And then he had become an agent part-time and he had the same experience uh just kind of dropped as quickly so i'm sure somebody was you know behind the scenes running interference uh on the book and and actually at that point in time you know we we were still in a position of suspecting murder but but uh weren't weren't able to to prove it as as was later, you know done later on now of course we had to go to the cia to get uh information for your book was the CIA cooperative with your investigation yeah mo- most of the information I'd say about three quarters of the information I got I was able to get uh, even a lot of the CIA inf- CIA information I was able to get through other avenues but I, f- I did file uh, oh, maybe 140 150 uh, freedom of information uh, request uh, for mm-hmm. documents, specific documents, and and a lot of those were refiled, and a lot of those were actually appeals of initial f- of filings, and and I got I got a fair amount of of documentation from them. I'd say about oh maybe eighty percent of it useless. Uh, or things that that I'd already seen, uh, or other people, you know, had passed on to me. Uh, a lot of it from the the files that John Marks had gotten from his for his book through through the Freedom of Information Act. But I was able, through other means, uh, from from people, some of who are named in, in the book, some of whom aren't, uh, because they didn't want to be credited uh get a lot of other documents uh some from former employees both the cia and and fort detrick uh and the more important documents uh in terms of actually substantiating uh the murder came came from those people uh and the the book goes into a lot of specifics about who and why olson who murdered olson and why and and I couldn't even get the CIA to acknowledge the existence uh, of the two people who who killed Olson on November 28, 1953. They they said consistently that that they had no awareness of of the two men and and had nothing in their files. But ironically, uh, in a couple of the batches of documents they had sent me, uh, one of the men had been referred to by name. So when I pointed that out to them, uh, obviously it was a mistake on their part. The first thing they did was ask for the doc, ask for the copies copies of the documents back, so they could, I guess, verify the argument I was making. 
uh, and and said at that point in time, well, show us those, and then we'll comment. And and I did. I actually faxed <laughs> them, faxed them the same day they asked for them uh, to them, and and but they did they they didn't come through on their promise. They didn't. There was no comment whatsoever. And then when I refiled a request for information on that person yet again. Uh, I got the standard letter saying there was there was nothing in their files. I didn't even get those two pages back again. So, so that you know that shows how frustrating they can be in terms of working with them or trying to work with them. Absolutely, and I sometimes wonder how much uh, transparency there is as it relates to FOIA requests when you ask for something and, and you're told that uh, there's nothing. But there's a very important part of your book. There is another important person in your investigation. That's uh, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, mm-hmm. an American military psychiatrist. And just to let the audience know, was an American military psychiatrist no, and no, chemist. No, no, actually, Sidney Gottlieb you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, no, he, he, was a, he also was a chemist. Um, Right. A microchemist, uh, same as Olson, not a psychiatrist. Well, uh, I, I was finding this on, on the web while, uh-huh. while doing research, and uh, he's best known for his involvement with the CIA's mind control program, MKUltra. Right. right. And let right. me add to that that he was best known as uh, the black sorcerer and the dirty trickster. He supervised preparations of lethal poisons and experiments in mind control. And he also played a role in the CIA's attempt to assassinate Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba of the mm-hmm. Congo when he transferred some toxic biological uh, materials. You spoke with and interviewed Dr. Gottlieb several times. How did yes. that happen, and what did you find? Uh, actually, actually, it was it was pretty easy to uh, to talk to him. I I sort of I had I had gotten his phone number uh, through a couple sources and and knew. It was actually his his real phone number. I'd actually gotten his address. I, I contemplated uh, the possibility of actually going to his house at one point because it it wasn't it was nearby uh, where a friend of mine, uh, actually my brother, had a house. But uh, and then after thinking about it for a couple of weeks, I thought, well, now the polite thing would be to just call him. Uh, so I called uh, and I. His wife answered, and I asked for him, and he came to the phone, and it was interesting. I could I could tell right away I was talking to an elderly man uh, because mm-hmm. of the tone of his voice, and I think at the point in time uh, when I the year I was talking to him was, which is I think it was 1994, or 96, or anyway, he was I. Th- think at that point in time he was 84 or 85 years old but don't hold mm-hmm. me to that it's it it gives his age in the book uh i told him why i was calling uh i was very uh i was very frank with him and and told him i was uh interested in, in just discussing uh his work in general and then maybe if he was willing to talk a little bit of, uh, about the Frank Olson case, uh, and and he listened and he said he said he it surprised me he said he'd be happy to talk to me he said there was there was one issue, and that issue was that uh, at that point in time he was being sued uh, by an attorney in New York City uh, for allegedly dosing uh, a. a a young New York artist uh, with LSD in Paris, France in 1951 huh. or 52. It's interesting. As it turned out, it, it was not Gottlieb that dosed this man, but but this man felt rather strongly that it was Gottlieb. Uh, and and so he said, because of, because of that active case, uh, that that he'd be willing to talk, but I'd first have to talk to his attorney uh, to to get permission uh, uh, for him to talk. Uh, and he said, if you know, if you can talk, and he named his attorney. He said, if you can explain things to him adequately, and and uh, then I'd be happy to talk to you. I figured at that point in time it was his way of politely blowing me off uh, because my immediate reaction and assumption was well I'm going to call this attorney and he's going to you know hang up and just say no but uh I called the attorney I think the next day uh and it was a New York attorney for for the agency a private law firm but 
but very closely connected with the agency and and uh for some reason i don't know things kind of there were we had something there was something in common that came up right away and the attorney kind of hemmed and hawed and he said well fine uh i'll let you you know it's okay go ahead and talk to sydney but uh he said, I'm, there's going to be two or three areas that are going to be taboo. And uh, unfortunately, one of them was Frank Olson. I was able, uh, maybe the second or third time I interviewed Gottlieb, to, to sort of backdoor the whole Olson case uh, by asking about other people and, and sort of uh, backing him. Roundabout way. Uh, yeah, backing him into a conversation. And, and he wasn't stupid. He knew he knew <laughs> what I was doing. And and so we did talk, uh, in, in all of this, again, as pointed out in the book, we did talk about some of those personalities. And we had a, a very brief discussion about uh, one of the people that uh, murdered Olson. Uh, and Gottlieb was pretty forthcoming in a cryptic sort of way uh, about that person. Gottlieb, Gottlieb was a was a very very interesting man, uh, and and I've read a huge amount of material about him before talking to him, and and it's it's uh, it, it it kind of people I I kind of had mixed emotions about him. I thought. Yeah, I thought he was, for the most part, pretty honest with me. Although, you know, I I didn't ask him questions directly about things because I had been told not to. Uh, you know, it's not like I could say, okay, well, when did you know Frank Olson was going to be murdered? Uh, because I knew, right. you know, that that those questions weren't going to be answered, and there were other things on my list, frankly, that were a little a little bit more important. Uh, because I knew he would answer, probably answer those. But Gottlieb was a, there's no doubt that he was a brilliant guy. He's a brilliant chemist. Uh, he, he, without Did you say, any, did without, you say that he was not a military psychiatrist? Because I read on, on no, some of his no, bio. He was, that, he was, he was, uh, I don't, that I know of Gottlieb had no training whatsoever in psychiatry. He, he went to, he went to college in New York City, uh, and studied chemistry and then went to got a BA in chemistry and then went to Arkansas where he got a, a PhD in chemistry. And then from Arkansas, he went to work. Uh, he might've gone to work in the private sector briefly, but then, uh, then he ended up at the department of agriculture for about two or three years. Uh, I wonder who added this to Wikipedia. Uh, military psychiatrist. No, no, he was never. As a matter of fact, the military was a real sore point with him, and I, I talked to him a lot about that because Golly, when he was first born, uh, most people say he, he had a club foot. Actually, he was born with two club feet, uh, which, which at the time he was born was considered almost a, a curse from God. A lot of people would. Would uh, some families actually would kill babies that 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 were born with yes. two club feet? They considered it a you know a real curse. But Gottlieb was born with two club feet, and he and also stuttered. Uh, stuttered, as correct. A child seriously stuttered, and that was probably related to to the club feet uh, because he got horribly harassed. And then he taught speech therapy later in life. Yeah, he did after he after he yeah that's interesting uh, and and goes straight to the stutter stuttering uh, after he resigned from the CIA late in life he reschooled and he went back to college and and trained himself got a degree in speech therapy uh, but but after he initially got out of college with a with a PhD in in chemistry. Uh, in the war, at that point in time, the war was Second World War was just beginning. He desperately wanted to to join. He wanted to. He was very patriotic, uh, although he was briefly uh, uh, joined a socialist club in college, uh, and and actually looked at communism fairly closely. He was born a Jew, but never never a practicing Jew. Uh, and didn't really believe uh, in any of the tenets of the Jewish faith. Uh, he was more interested in uh, Eastern religions, Buddhism, and and 
a couple of the other Eastern religions, but he desperately tried to join. He first went down to the the local uh, the military signing hall or whatever it's called and tried to join the army, and and they refused him because of uh, they thought he had one club foot, and because at that point in time the one club foot that was that was visible was still fairly uh, was a hindrance. Uh, to the way he walked and so they turned him down he tried to join the navy they turned him down uh, i think he tried to join the air force they turned him down uh so finally uh he, he wanted to do something that he considered patriotic and that's why he went to work for the department of agriculture and then and then the after that the cia came along after the war and and uh, so he jumped at the opportunity to to go to work for the CIA. He was act, he was recruited uh, to work for the CIA by a psychologist uh, for the CIA, a guy called John Gettinger, uh, who who at at the time that he recruited uh, Gottlieb. I don't know the specifics of how Gottlieb was recruited, but. Uh, worked uh, in the in the psychology department at the CIA, and and within about two years, Gittinger actually ended up working under Gottlieb in in a in the chemical division that that Gottlieb headed up almost within uh, within a little less than a year after he was hired. So that that gives one a good sense of how probably aggressive and smart he was. Uh, uh, he went from being a low-level bureaucrat at the Department of Agriculture to heading up, literally heading up the chemical division at, at the CIA, which which had, uh, I think at that point in time, maybe 20 or 25 chemists uh, working for it. And not only that, but uh, later he also became an avid dancer, even with club, uh, club feet. Did you hear mm -hmm. that too? Yeah, he was, he was very much into folk dancing. Uh, and I think that is... Parents, his parents were were uh, from actually from Russia, uh, or no, I'm sorry, his parents were from Eastern Europe, uh, and I think I think his father was interested in folk dancing. So uh, the reason I knew he he was into folk dancing is because he he eventually ended up hiring a notorious uh, federal narcotics agent, a guy whose name was George Hunter White. And and in my research, I I went through oh, a lot of files and diaries involving George White, and there were a lot of notations on White's part about going uh, folk dancing with Gottlieb in New York City on, oh, I don't know, seven or eight, eight occasions. And to earn those titles of uh, Black Sorcerer and Dirty Trickster, he must have... Uh done a lot of interesting things. Do you know of some of the things that he did? Yeah, I did. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
découle de tes yeux, de tes yeux verts. Là que mon âme tremble et se voit à l'envers, mes songes viennent en foule pour se désaltérer. Ces gouffres amers. This is Daniel Astro, and you're listening to Veritas, and I'm in Spain, Buenos Aires.